Anonymous Henchman is a surf band out of Omaha, Nebraska, and it's their Nikola Tesla theme that's opening up episode 236 of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm your host, writer, producer, Derek M. Cook. Welcome to the podcast, and thanks to the Anonymous Henchman. This song is from their album Dial H for Henchman. You can find them at anonymoushenchmansurf.bandcamp.com or follow the link in the show notes to go check them out. Every song is awesome, but I picked Nikola Tesla theme because Nikola Tesla, he's a scientist, maybe a little bit of a mad scientist, but not necessarily in a bad way. And there's a little bit of mad science, but again, not in a bad way. In the movie that we're talking about this week on Monster Kid Radio, we're talking about the movie First Men in the Moon from 1964 from director Nathan Duran, featuring some stop motion effects by the master Ray Harryhausen. And I'm not doing this movie by myself. I'm being joined by one of my dearest friends, sculptor, monster kid, Tom Beagler. Tom and I are going to break down this movie, talk about it. We're going to spoil parts of the film. So if you haven't seen this movie, hit pause, go watch the movie, come right back here. I'll wait for you. Okay, you back? You ready? All right, good. We're going to catch up with Tom Beagler. We'll get to that and a little bit of other business right after this. going over Dr. Phillips's notes, and I must warn you that we're faced with a very dangerous situation, Dr. Stanley. A remote island destined for total destruction. Listen, if you think there's something running loose on this island, you can't leave me alone. Tony, this could Please. be... Please, don't leave me alone. Not very keen on going down in their saddle again. Out of an experiment on life came a devastating death. You look safe. Science creates. Can science destroy? Now, this is very difficult to explain, but there are some creatures loose on this island, and they're dangerous. What do you mean, creatures? I wish I could tell you more, but we just don't know exactly what they are. Come on, let's get out of here. Listen to me! They're inactive now because they've defined it, but we don't know for how long, and we can't stay here, so come on! Oh, David, I'm so proud! So am I! Fiction or fact, this could really happen. Are you all right? No! There's it's one out here. I'm in the car, quick! Oh, 
can this horror be destroyed? David, hmm? do you really think we can get out of this? Well, I think we, we stand a good chance, a very good chance, yes. But you don't really believe that, do you? Not 100%, no, but I'd like to believe it. Can these terrified people be saved from certain death? Fire, bullets, bombs could not penetrate its impregnable shell. But something did. What? See Island of Terror at this theater soon. Hello, Christopher. What insanity are you up to today? Oh, hey, Lydia. I'm downloading some movies. What? <laughs> People are always telling me that's illegal. Uh-uh, not these. They're all public domain. Oh, look, Rescue from Gilligan's Island. Well, let me see what you're doing. Oh, you're at archive.org. Well, they have thousands of films, TV shows, commercials, radio shows, and books available. Yeah, but there are so many. I wish there was a podcast or something that would discuss these things. You know, give us an idea of what's worth the time. Um, Christopher, there is. We do one. <laughs> oh, that's right. We host Orphan Entertainment. Once a month, we pick something from archive.org and review and discuss it. <laughs> that sure is nice of us. <laughs> sure. Why don't you click over to orphan-entertainment.jonja.net and remind yourself a little more about the show. <laughs> Will do. So let's see. That's orphan-entertainment.jonja.net. Hey, can we review the Gilligan's Island movie sometime? Mm-hmm. We'll see, Christopher. We'll see. I say there are things better left unsolved. Who knows what waits for us in nature's no-man's land? Possible, unbelievable, fantastic. But I tell you, it could happen. It could happen. It could happen. It could happen. Yes, it could happen. For various authorities believe that buried somewhere under the polar ice cap, in a state of suspended animation, are the awesome creatures, the leviathans that roamed the earth at the dawn of time. And under certain conditions... A nuclear explosion can free one from his icy tomb. Then, guided by instinct, the beast would come back, back to the caverns of the deepest Atlantic where it was spawned. An armored giant wreaking his prehistoric fury on modern man and his puny machines. Cities would be terrorized by the cruel intruder from the past. Populations crazed and panicked with fear by its destructive force. Granite and steel would crumble. Soldiers and their weapons would be powerless before the onslaught of the beast. The beast. The beast. The beast from 20,000 fathoms. Herald Square, 34th Street, Broadway. Every section of the city is guarded. No one knows where the monster will strike next. Another one, Colonel? No. You know what the radioactive isotope is? No, but if it can be loaded, I can fire it. I'll load it. Just remember one thing. This is the only isotope of its kind this side of Oak Ridge, so you can't miss. Ah! 
Monster Kid Radio, it's been a little while since we've had this man on the show, but if you've been over to our website at monsterkidradio.net, I'm sure you've seen his work or his presence. He's somebody who helped design one of the very first logos that we use here on Monster Kid Radio. He's been on the show to talk about some awesome movies, and we've got another movie to talk about with Tom Bigler. Tom, welcome back to Monster Kid Radio, sir. Hello, Derek. That was a nice introduction. Yeah, you like that? Thanks for having me back in the MKR Clubhouse. There there we go. There we go. How's it been going, Tom? Oh, good. You know, I've been dealing with this, well, you know, this unusually warm summer we've had. Oh, boy. My air conditioner's been cranked a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. But uh, otherwise, everything's going great. It has been brutal. The weather-wise has been just insane, and I have to turn off my air conditioner to record. So, Ooh. you know what? What I do for the show—the <laughs> <laughs> ultimate sacrifice. Ah, it's worth it though to talk about these awesome movies with these awesome people. And before we dive into the movie we're going to talk about today, you've been watching a lot of movies lately, right? Well, I've been watching a few, some series, some uh, games. One, I wanted to, I, I talked to you about this before the show. Mm-hmm. Mona and I went to the library. We go there to look for DVDs, which is a great resource, of course. And we happened to cross a movie that I don't think you have seen. You had said you hadn't seen it called More Dead Than Alive. It sounds like an awesome title. And then you told me it was a Western. And it's a Western with Clint Walker, one of my favorites, a man's man. And you have Vincent Price and Anne Francis from Forbidden Planet for the wow. kids. You know, so an amazing cast. Mm-hmm. A real quick synopsis, just Clint Walker plays a uh, killer cane. He was put in prison for 18 years for killing 12 men. He had 12 men on his, 12 notches on his gun. And he gets out of prison. And he really wants to change his life, but nobody will give him a break because he's Killer Kane. He ends up getting involved with Vincent Price, who runs a shooting show, a Wild West shooting show. Who has He actually has another shooter, this younger guy, who's a little intimidated by Clint. Because Clint's the big star now. It sounds like a great, <laughs> a great premise. But uh, the execution was very odd. And I had talked to you about... There's one scene, and I don't think this is spoiling it a whole bunch, where because uh, it's kind of obvious from the beginning, Vincent Price is probably not going to make it till the end. <laughs> but uh, but there's a scene where literally Vincent Price is being shot brutally, and this is all face front on camera, and he's probably shot. Well, I think I had a six shooter, but I think he was shot more like nine times. But they show every bullet. And I played this for, I'm going to play this for the monster kids out there. And during a scene like this, you would think you would want some really intense music showing this brutal scene. Sure. And this is what they decided to go with. So that's what I got to be, huh? A killer. I'll be a killer. So there you go. That gives you an example (laughs) of how tonally strange this movie was. That is just bizarre. It, it was very strange. It had such potential, and, and the ending was not what we were expecting. Mona and I were both really surprised. And I won't ruin it for the uh, – if, if people want to 
watch it. I would be curious if any, if any monster kids would watch it and and uh, maybe email you and let you know what they thought about it. There we go. There we go. Yeah, it sounds just very odd. Yeah, I've never even heard of it, and I, I don't think. Larry, uh, Dr. Gangrene has gotten up to the 60s on his Vincent Price series yet, so yeah, he hasn't talked about it. I've not heard of it, but that music just sounds goofy. Very odd. And the whole thing is just filled with, with, with things. It's, it's in the, the old west, but Anne Francis, she looks like somebody maybe from the 60s. She's like, she's there. She's an artist, artist on her own. She's always wearing pants, you know, just, she's, She's dressed like somebody from the 60s, but it's just a very odd juxtaposition of and conglomeration of things in it. It's, it's, it's bizarre. Vincent Price and Anne Francis, you'd think it'd be magic. Yeah. Well, what are you going to do? Yeah. Not, not everybody can, uh, <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> hit a home run and, every time or something. Yeah, I guess. that's I've, true. But it was entertaining. You know, good performances. You know, mm-hmm. I would be curious if anybody would see it or not. Yeah. Drop me a line, guys, if anybody's seen it. I'm be curious to hear a little bit more about it and you know i'll add it to my to watch pile just out of curiosity now more than anything else or, or should i hold off no you should watch it derek oh yeah you should watch it immediately <laughs> <laughs> all right cool well that brings us to the end of this episode of monster radio i have a movie to watch wait i can't do that we've got to talk about first men in the moon that's right ever since time began man has been fascinated by the mystery of the moon But over 60 years ago, writer H.G. Wells anticipated the shape of things to come with his fascinating adventure, First Men in the Moon. The story of the first men to bridge the quarter million miles between heaven and earth. This is how it began. This is a solemn moment in the history of mankind. We're off! I predicted, shot into space with the speed of a bullet. First men in the moon. An experience unparalleled on the screen as two worlds meet and clash. Come on! Help me, come on! First Men in the Moon, starring Edward Judd, first human to set foot on a strange new world in space. Martha Heyer, the first woman to experience the indescribable dangers of this other world. Jeffries, who discovers an empire beyond imagination. First Men in the Moon. Filmed in Dynamation. Dynamation, miracle of the screen, captures the whole marvelous, miraculous story of man's first journey to the moon. It makes all other forms of power obsolete. That's where they're getting their power from, sunlight. You will discover human ant-like creatures H.G. Wells called selenites. And giant gastropods. Come and run! Fearsome moon monsters to be hunted and killed. You will encounter another world 
of eerie beauty and infinite mystery. Soon others will be coming from Earth. Our galleries will be strewn with dead. I'm the only one who holds the secret of Cavorite. Then you and your secret will remain here on the moon. Cavor! Cavor, this is not an audience. You're on trial. No, Benjamin. You're convicted. I think maybe I mentioned this on another podcast. I always, I can't believe these people that remember their childhood so well that they can remember what they did when they were seven and this, you know, blah, blah, blah. I can't remember my childhood real well, but I do have a memory of seeing First Men in the Moon at the theater. It came out in 64. I would have been four. I don't think I, I don't think I remember it from them, but I think they probably reshowed it probably a few years later. Mm-hmm. Because I have a, a significant memory of seeing this movie and how much I liked it when I was a kid and how impressed I was at the time with some of the effects and stuff. And we'll, you know, I've watched it a couple times and now a couple times lately. And we'll see if it holds up as well as my seven or eight year old memory does. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> well, I, I don't think I saw it in the theater. I'm pretty sure, uh, you know. <laughs> Probably not. No, no. Uh, this was actually the first time I had watched it from start to finish. I had, had watched bits and pieces of it here and there, specifically a lot of the Harryhausen effects. Mm. But to actually just sit down, dedicated viewing, this was the first time for me. I have it on Blu-ray. Uh, Twilight Time put it out, I believe, earlier this year. And I snatched it up with the recommendation of Stephen Sullivan, actually. He recommended I pick it up, so I went and grabbed it. And this gave me an opportunity to crack it open and, and give it a watch. It's interesting. It was entertaining. It was a... Yeah. I listened to the actual H.G. Wells novel from a, a podcast this last few days. So it's it's interesting how the the book is so much different than the movie ended up. Okay. So it is it is based on a novel. Based on a novel. H.G. Wells, who's a master. Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the mainstays, one of the forefathers of science fiction, responsible for the time machine, things to come, War of the Worlds. Mm-hmm. So the source material is there, and so you listen to it like uh, through Audible or something like that. I'm not sure of the spelling. It's it's called Levervox. It's a, if you look if you oh, get on okay. the podcast on iTunes. Uh-huh. I just looked up First Men in the Moon, a volunteer run deal where they put out a lot of classics mm-hmm. on. So basically, you can volunteer to read these classics for these the series of podcasts, and that's where I that's where I found it. Well, that's cool. Yeah, this is a, a story in the public domain now, so I'm sure yes. if you can get it for free, it might be something worth checking out and listening to, but it sounds like it's very different than the film. I've never read it. I thought I had when I was young, but now that I've listened to it again, I I don't think I had. But it's considerably different than the movie, but I'll bring up some of the differences as we go on, but it's it's kind of obvious in some ways why they chose to diverge from the novel. Mm-hmm. And there's some things they did that I don't even understand why they did it that way, <laughs> in my opinion. So so we'll get into it and we'll figure it out as we go, I guess. Huh? Okay. All right. So the film you mentioned, 1964, this is probably best known not just for H.G. Wells, but for Ray Harryhausen being involved mm. in the production. And my understanding is that this is something that he sought out and he wanted to do. 
Harryhausen is a master. I mean, if oh, there I'm is so... anybody that we can, you know, call one of the pillars of the monster kid dumb, he's one of them. Yeah, I would imagine he, as I was growing up, he was hugely influential on me as a, as a kid, seeing mm-hmm. Seventh Voyage of Sinbad and Jason and the Argonauts. And just I'm a big amazing. fan of Earth versus the Flying Saucers. I mean, Earth. it just Saucers. masterpieces. Now, when I was sitting down to watch this, I was like, where's Harryhausen? It's like, I, I know Harry House isn't in this. I've seen the footage. I know it's there. I mean, we got to it eventually, and it was cool. I'm glad it showed up. I, I think it was almost worth the wait. Almost, it was, yeah. It was cool to see. I liked it. It's got this weird kind of production, this weird feel. It's like a story told in flashback, but I don't know. It's an odd one. When I think of Harry House and I think of Wells, I don't necessarily go to, I don't think I'm going to go to this one. No, this is this doesn't showcase his his talent like so many of the other ones. Right, and a lot of it was budgetary. I know that's why some of the differences. Like for example, in the novel, there's well, I'll wait on that. We'll wait till we get there. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you keep teasing I'm me, man. I know. <laughs> well, this has got somebody in the film that I'm a big fan of, partly because of you, Tom. <laughs> um, this has got Edward Judd in the film, and that's right. I think I first became really aware of Edward Judd when I watched Island of Terror, uh-huh. which I adore. It's one of my favorite non-Hammer Peter Cushing films. Mine too, as yeah. you know. Yeah, I mean, and we talked about that here on the show. Oh, it's been a while. Yeah. I don't, I don't have the website in front of me, so I couldn't tell you what episode, but check the archives. We talked about Island of Terror. Edward Judd's one of the leads in that. He's the lead in this. And is that him in the old age makeup as well at the beginning of the film? I think it is. Yeah. It's hard to tell, which is something we'll talk about when we get there. Something I want to bring up. But okay. Yeah, Edward Judd, he did Day of the Earth Caught Fire. Which is another great film. See, I can't remember that too well. I know that, was that the one where the temperature gradually rose? Well, and then the, the Earth Caught Fire in it. Oh, oh well, good title. <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> now, I have that on Blu-ray. Spoiler alert. Yeah, I know, right? It's directed by Val Guest, who is an awesome director, and I have it on blue. I just haven't watched the Blu-ray. I've only seen it on VHS. Oh, nice. But I do remember enjoying it quite a bit. But yeah, he's in that. He's We talked about Island of Terror, which I think overshadows anything that I've ever seen him in. Plus, he was in Vengeance of She, which I just talked about, oh, man. over at 1951 Down Place with Scott and Casey. He was actually in a movie that I really like that's non-monster that I, I actually liked him in, which is Sink the Bismarck. Ooh. That was a really good where they were looking for the Bismarck, of course, to sink it. Again, spoiler alert. <laughs> but he was good, and that was a really good movie. If anybody's interested in some historical naval movies, that was really entertaining. Oh, I'm not familiar with that one. That one I would recommend. Yeah? <laughs> yeah, that one I would. I would watch that one over uh, More Dead Than Alive, I think. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's just me. Oh, I have to reshuffle my to watch okay, list. Okay, all right. All right. <laughs> so I do like him quite a bit. And then, of course, Lionel Jeffries, man. He's awesome. He is so over the top in this, but he's great. He's fantastic. He's a great actor. My first experience with him was Chitty Chitty Bang Bang as a kid. Oh, of course. Yeah. You know, just seeing him in that and the, the over the top. The opposite, you know, I used this phrase earlier. I recorded earlier today with Casey Criswell about a Doctor mm-hmm. Who film. And I, and I used the phrase to describe the Peter Cushing character in that as the opposite of a mad scientist. And and I feel like Lionel Jeffries is kind of like that, too, in so many of the movies I've seen him in. Mm-hmm. 
I felt like he was kind of like that in this film as well. It's it's him. It's Edward Judd. It's basically their story with Martha Heyer <laughs> along for the ride. She's an addition to the movie that she's nowhere in the novel. I'm not surprised. Yeah. I'm not surprised. She doesn't do a lot. <laughs> uh, which wasn't surprising either, unfortunately. But she is the voice of reason. <laughs> she really is. You know, that's one issue I have is that uh, they play it, as we get it, they play it the Cavour and Bedford. I wish they weren't quite so broad. Because the novel itself isn't, there's a lot of comic undertones in this movie that the, the novel doesn't have. That I, <laughs> I prefer, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, especially with Cavour. Yeah. Especially yeah. with Cavour, with the yeah. ducks and. Oh, yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, maybe we should get into it before we talk too much about everything. Yeah, we should, we should talk a little bit about the film overall and the plot and the story and break it down. Directed by Nathan Duran, who was a frequent collaborator with Harryhausen, so he knew what he was doing when it came to the stop motion. But the movie doesn't start with any of the stop motion. The movie starts, there's a moon landing. A UN moon landing. It's kind of nice to see this joint national program to land on the moon. There's Soviets. There's us, a few others, aren't there? A few others. Yeah. But but the two big dogs, I mean, they're just in, <laughs> in the say. 60s, <laughs> to see us and the Russians working together was kind of nice to see in a film. Yeah. And the Brits are there. Yeah. I remember the Brit. Mm-hmm. But when they land up on the moon, they find something. Well, that's what, you know, I was going to say, when they, <laughs> I just wrote this down, they were the first uh, men who are dropped by a coat hanger. Onto the moon. Did you notice that? That how they, <laughs> they looked like they were hanging onto a coat hanger when they dropped them. That just seemed cheesy to me. I'm sorry. Well, now next time I watch it, that's all I'm going to be able to see. But, hey, that's a coat hanger. <laughs> but yeah, sorry. So yeah, they land no. on the moon and start exploring, looking around, checking it out. And they stumble across a flag. Oh, yeah, and of course there's a Brit with them because there's, it's the UK flag. Sure, there. And a note, a declaration claiming the moon for England. <laughs> well, these are the first people on the moon. How is this possible? And this is the, the motivating element to get us to the flashback to who the first men on the moon really were. Not this expedition, but an expedition several years ago. Did they give a year? 1901? When they take off? Yeah. I think it's 1901, or is it 1899? It's early. Very, so it very is, early, yeah. Yeah, 60, 65 years. Yeah, it's, it's been quite some time. There's a little bit of discussion about whether or not they should even report any of this. How are they going to explain this away? But ultimately, they do. And, it, and I really like the mystery aspect here, trying to figure out where this came from and what the heck it is. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed that. And the research that's going on on Earth checking the names and, and checking registries here and there. You get a little bit of the comedy thrown in here while they're doing the research, but I really like this bit. I do, and it has a, I'm not sure the gentleman's name now, who plays the uh, registrar. Miles Malison, Malison? Oh, Malison, yeah. yeah. I liked him in this. He wasn't in it for more than a couple minutes, but right. he was really entertaining. You know, the comic overtones here worked for me. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I like the investigation. I like the snooping. I like the scientific uh, and the, the mystery solving. I like that element, and I, I guess I should probably watch more mysteries because I like them so much I just haven't made the time to do it. Ah, <laughs> uh, another podcast. Uh, oh, no. <laughs> Mystery Kid Radio. Mystery Kid, huh? 
<laughs> yeah, I really enjoyed this. I wish they would have used this a little more. I I wish they would have maybe come back to this group of of people that's trying to investigate this because it almost it feels like they were going to come back to them. To me, it, it felt it like they were going to be part of the story because they'll get the gals, you know, talking to people, you know, people it just it just felt like they would be back to me. That's I think a quality of the performance here. I mean, they felt mm-hmm. like real people. They felt like they were important here. They weren't people whose lives stopped when the camera wasn't on them. So that's a good thing. Granted, we were robbed of having any experience <laughs> of what that life was when the camera wasn't there. But, you know, they, they threw their all into it and they made it interesting for us to watch. They do find out that the names on this declaration are legit and they are able to track down a very elderly Arnold Bedford in a nursing home. And when they get to the nursing home, and of course reporters are flocking around and everyone wants to know what's going on and the reporters are kept out. So it's just the investigators that are let into the nursing home. And we hear that Bedford used to tell these stories about being involved in astronomy and going into the moon, but everybody kind of dismissed it because, I mean, he's just a crazy old man. And then they show Bedford the notes and this look of, they will now believe me, comes across his face. And he starts to tell the story because, well, they got to get out of there. They yeah, he becomes quite concerned for the astronauts that they're going to be walking into something. Yeah. This is one of my pet peeves, and I'll just throw it out right now. You know, you asked me, okay. was that Edward Judd as the old Bedford? And it's hard to recognize him. It could have been somebody else. It didn't even sound like him. My my pet peeve is I, I wish instead of making up an actor in a bad-looking old person makeup, they would just go out and find somebody who resembles that actor who's actually that age, you know, who's 90 years old. Anyway. Sure. No, I agree with you. It can sometimes not work very well. Now, if you're doing, say, like an episode of Star Trek and you're aging your actors, you want to use the actors as much as you can so that, you know, it's them. It's recognizable. It's identifiable. In this case, we didn't have any experience with a younger Bedford, so the older Bedford could have looked like anything. You know, if anything else, maybe cast an older actor and then dub the voice with Edward Judd. You know, so he at least sounds and the same. And he only kind of sounds the same because he's doing his old man voice. It's a little <laughs> over the top. Now, that said, I've seen worse old Uh-oh. age makeup. Prometheus? <laughs> well, that wasn't that bad. <laughs> so, I mean, I see where you're coming from, though. And it, yeah. Fortunately, we don't spend a lot of time with them because the bulk of the story is Bedford recounting what happened and how he ended up on the moon with Cavor and yes. Kate Callender. It's kind of a, a story told in flashback. Yeah, it is. Which is an interesting device. It is. I can only assume, you know, none of this, of course, is in the novel, any of this. Um, my my theory is that, you know, 64, we have the space race. I I, I assume they just mm-hmm. wanted to add that possibly to tie into, you know, kind of a space race fervor because we're going to the moon and maybe they felt they needed that. But really none of this beginning matters at all. I mean, as far as the actual story and uh, I would have been fine without it to be frank, but well, the story is Lionel Jeffries doing the opposite of a mad scientist (laughs) thing. Uh, A manic scientist. 
I loved him. I mean, yeah, he's kind of bumbling and, oh, no, what are you doing? And he's always yelling for, uh, who's he always yelling at? His assistant. Oh, I had his name. No, I don't know. Gibbs. 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 That's right. He's always yelling at Gibbs. Gibbs, you are an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Gibbs. He's got some quirks. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Joseph Cavler's got some quirks. And he's looking for a place to run his experiments. Unfortunately, or unfortunately, I suppose, Bedford has a place, and he's in a lot of debt. Yeah, Bedford's... Yeah. He's not a very good protagonist, if, if that's what he is, because he's a scoundrel. He is. He's not a scoundrel in that he's, like, cheating on his no. girlfriend or whatever, but he is... He's using people. He's seriously in debt. He tries to scam his way out of some debt with the sale of the house by having Kate mm-hmm. sign for it, and that becomes an issue later on. He's not the most likable. No, he's always trying to, well, she'd like to be married. Well, we'll get into that. And he's always getting out of it. <laughs> it's like, oh, no, dear, I can't do that. Well, when Cavor comes into their lives, Bedford has received, uh, was that an eviction notice? Yeah, it was a 20-pound due note. That's not a heck of a lot of money, is it? Well, no. 20 pounds? I guess well, back then they were going to sell Cherry Cottage for two thousand dollars, so or two thousand pounds. So that would have been ten thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. Well, when Arnold Bedford tells Kate about his money woes, they do talk at one point. Well, he talks at one point about maybe selling the property, but I got the impression that he really didn't want to. It was just one of these things he told her to kind of put her off. Well, yeah, because he doesn't own it; he can't sell it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so he's lying to Whoops. Her yeah, he's flat out lying to her. He's a conniver, Derek. I'm telling you. Do not take notes from this man on how to uh, make friends and influence people. <laughs> it will all catch up to you. He's pretty loyal. He said he has yeah, a sorry, lot of money, but it's all tied up in boots from the Boer War. Was that true? Did you buy that? I didn't think so. And later, he brings up boots, but he doesn't. Give the expression like, oh, I could use those boots for this. He just kind of, so I didn't buy it. I think he's just making it up. Of all the things to lie about, though, it's like, I have money, of course, but it's all in uh, <laughs> uh, boots. Yeah, boots. But Cavor comes into their life, and he needs a place to do his experiments and create his invention. Oh, what does he end up calling Cavorite. it? Yes. Cavorite. Which is... So people know my background. Wasn't allowed to watch a lot of monster movies growing mm-hmm. up or whatever. And, and I've told this story repeatedly. I'm sure people are getting tired of hearing it. But I was able to watch a lot of mm-hmm. Disney films. My parents would let me rent the Disney flicks. So this immediately made me think of Flubber. You know? And I think uh, The Absent-Minded Professor, that came out in 61. I am I know. This <laughs> movie is based on a novel and, and all that. But is the uh, Cavorite in the novel? Is that how they use or is that what they use to get yes. off the planet? Yeah, the science oh, okay. is basically all the same. Um, as far as um, Bedford meeting um, Cavor, as I said, there's just no Kate. But the, in the novel, this beginning part that takes you know a, a decent chunk, it's only two and a half chapters in the novel. They meet, and they're taken off for the moon pretty quick. How do they meet in the novel? Well, in the novel, Cavor takes this walk every night and he walks past Bedford's house, past Jerry cottage and he whistles and that's his time. That's what his time when he thinks, and it's really important to him. And then one night Bedford hears him and he thinks, well, I'm going to go find out 
why this guy walks by every night. So he goes to talk to to Cavor, and just the fact that Bedford knows that he's walking this pass and whistling throws Cavor off his routine enough to where he becomes all flustered, and and that's kind of their initial meeting. So the flustered kind of characterization is in the novel as well? Uh, not as much. Not as much. No. He's a little okay. absent-minded. He's a little, but not not at all like Lionel Jeffries' performance in it. And Bedford's not. Okay. That's what's weird about the movie is the 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 novel doesn't portray. Well, it's told in from Bedford's point of view, of course. So, but he doesn't come across as a a cad at all in the novel. It's just something they picked up for the for the movie. Well, and you know, you say that now, and you're right. It is told from Bedford's point of view because he's the one telling the story, but he doesn't sugarcoat his past at all. Hmm, that is, oh. I hadn't thought about that. That's a good point. <laughs> Well, at least he's being honest oh, there with himself go. now. It's good, th- good there. That's it. <laughs> there you go. It's all counts. Yep. It's a big counseling session for him. I mean, I'll tell you about the time <laughs> I went to the moon, but first, it took me going to the moon uh, to realize what I had here. I would highly I recommend it. <laughs> Very therapeutic. Good for the soul. So Joseph Caver, Lionel Jeffries, he's making this Caverite, which we don't really get to see a lot of. We see this glowing pot. It looks like he's maybe smelting metal you really don't get to see no you just see that and when he paints it on things like the chair right no that's about all you see of it it, they don't go into a whole much more detail in the novel but it works by hell i have no idea how it works but what it does (laughs) well thank god you can't tell me how it works (laughs) because it's impossible yeah it pretty much frees you from the grip of gravity that's what's so uh, i don't know that's the big scientific jump but you know it's hg wells you know he's the time machine guy he's (laughs) so you know now we're even in 64 you would look at it but you know when he wrote the novel that probably wasn't as unrealistic as as it seems right now so right and as soon as bedford sees this the dollar sign starts in his head and he talks about putting him on boots but caver's got a different idea he wants to go to the moon, because why wouldn't you? I can think of several reasons why I wouldn't want to go to the moon <laughs> in an untested uh, vehicle like that, but whatever. A vehicle that looks like it's been put together with wood, <laughs> um, with diving yeah. suits, which he explains to Kate when she questions yeah. why diving suits. Well, it keeps mm-hmm. the air out. It'll help keep the air in. All right. As a kid who grew up in the 80s, I felt like the design of the ship looked a little bit like the design that Joe Dante and them would use in the movie Explorers. Oh, the three kids yeah. who go up into space. I picked up on that a little bit. I don't know if it was intentional or I'm just looking now or reaching, but it's basically just this ball that was kind of put together with the equipment that they had and the way it travels up into space is pretty. <laughs> it's a cool looking sphere, I will say. It's cool. I mean, and the I like interior, it. I like the interior. Just, it has a real steampunk has uh, yes. I don't know if that's velour or something, pads all around with tufting and those uh, bizarre rope-shaped devices for seats or for whatever they are. These yeah. weird nets, yeah, that you're supposed to put your <laughs> arms and legs in because the you're going to get jostled around quite a bit. I, I like the design of the ship. I thought that was pretty neat. I did like that quite a bit. And there's only room for two, so, you know, Kate's not going to be part of the story much longer, No, right? she must stay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Kate confronts Bedford, yeah, about going to the moon. Mm-hmm. Well, that's this is when they when they see the, the sphere for the first time. Bedford's on board for going to the moon. Kate is not on board with Bedford going to the moon. Well, Bedford's on board because he thinks there's gold nuggets sprinkled around like fruit cake and like raisins in a fruit cake. But Bedford thinks there's there's profit to be made here. There's money and there's an answer to his money problems. And just cavorite, selling on- cavorite wouldn't give you enough money, I guess. Was that before there was laws to protect an inventor? <laughs> no, seriously, <laughs> I'm just wondering. 1899 because you know now if somebody came up with cavorite, they'd have a license, they'd be billionaires. But back then, I wonder if that was before, and I don't know, I'm sorry for my bad social studies stuff, but I don't know if that was before. No, how dare you? We should go back to school. <laughs> I might. <laughs> um, if that was before there was protection, I'm, it doesn't matter. I mean, I, they didn't think about that. And, uh, I was just curious. Because maybe back then, know. if somebody could get the formula, they'd just do it themselves. True, true. Well, Bedford does get Caver to sign off on mm-hmm. making a partner. And putting the money from Calvert back into the project, which is what makes Kate pretty unhappy. Oh, you have enough money to get married, right? Oh, well, no. See, the money's going to go back into. And there he is getting out of the med- mm-hmm. married again. And remember, just to point out, Bedford lied. <laughs> he, he wanted to give him the profit from Cherry Cottage, which he didn't own. Because at that point, the Cavor didn't know. He still thought he could buy Cherry Cottage. So Bedford yep. was going to give him, quote, unquote, the $10,000 that he made for the sale of Cherry Cottage to invest in Cavorite. What does Kate oh, see in him? I don't understand. I wrote that in my notes. <laughs> and this isn't the first time, because later in the movie she'll say, this time I mean it, I'm leaving, and this time I mean it. <laughs> it's like she must put up with all yeah. kinds of stuff. He must be an amazing snuggler. <laughs> that must be it. You, you choose the moon or me? And he chose the moon. He chooses the moon, but she doesn't leave. She then helps him pack, giving him a gun and chicken. (laughs) You know, your threats aren't going to be, you know, (laughs) this is not how an intervention works. (laughs) Oh, poor Kate. Poor Kate, who's about to go on on an adventure that she did not sign up for. I do like how they bring her in. I kind of assumed that she'd be along for the ride once we mm-hmm. got to that point. Yeah, that's something about the movie. That's another thing about this bizarre science they're using where there seems to be a huge, some kind of thing to propel the sphere. Mm-hmm. But I thought the whole point of the science was you just open the blinds and then your chip took off. So why would there be a huge explosion? And there is a huge explosion. They, it is mm-hmm. big. And that's one of the things that I just don't understand. You know, she should have been able just to not be on the sphere as long as, but anyway. Right. Well, the, the creditors show up to arrest Bedford or Kate or questioning the sale of the home, and that shouldn't have happened. And Kate goes in to confront Arnold about it just as the sphere is about to blow or that it's about to be launched. And Caver tells Bedford that she's going to be killed if she doesn't get inside the sphere. She's got to get out of there. So they drag mm-hmm. her in and up, up and away they go. And I, I like it. I mean, it's, it's a pretty big explosion, even though Calvary probably should have just took care of it. But I do like the trip, and I do like the design mm-hmm. of, the, of the ship. I am glad that Kate got those chickens in there, because there's no way I could... Eat one sardine a day? <laughs> yeah, that was all that Calvary was planning on. Like, really? That's something, too, that's really hard for me to determine. I don't what the time frame for this is, because they don't really give you an idea of how long it takes to go from there to the moon. It doesn't seem like that long. 
long enough for Bedford to have to shave. Mm-hmm. So we do see that, but there are no other facilities in this Ooh. sphere. I was thinking so I don't, of, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I was thinking yeah. of the chickens. I never even thought about the people. Well, yeah, it's true. There's <laughs> well, chickens. It's okay. People poop would be worse. Of course, one sardine a day doesn't give you much. <laughs> Maybe that was the plan. Just enough to keep you going. And then they plunge into the sun for about 30 seconds. Yeah, they make like, they make it out to be mm-hmm. a really then big deal. Then they steer away. What was it? Kate opened mm-hmm. a window or something and threw off the trajectory. Not an actual window, but like a blind. A blind. Which is window. Yeah, opening the window would have been <laughs> <Yeah>. bad. <laughs> but that's an amazingly maneuverable sphere that works on gravity because you see it whipping around it likes to take a hard right mm-hmm. away from the sun it was going at a good clip yeah i thought that was going to be part of the story that was going to be a big mm-hmm. dangerous no. moment no not really and that's let's get not to the, the moon. novel none of that's <laughs> in the novel of course well if she's not in the novel at all all the stuff that she is involved with i assume is not yeah and then they get to the moon what did you think of the moon and how the moon looked i didn't mind it i didn't like their landing though i didn't understand they take off straight up, but they land like a kickball. Like they somebody kicked a kickball or something. They have to roll. Wouldn't it just land like it took off? I would think so. <laughs> if they could control the mm-hmm. Cavorite, because there's still a little bit of gravity on the moon. So, anyway. I like the moon. Yeah, I mean, I don't think way. it looked bad. This isn't the first time we've seen people land on the moon in a science fiction movie. But I liked it. I thought it, it passed for what it was. I knew exactly where mm-hmm. they were. I did think the ground was a little soft when he plunged the flag into <laughs> it to claim the... It's just a little soft. It looked like one of those uh, floral <laughs> bricks. <laughs> and then we have, while they're exploring, we have Cavor getting high on oxygen. <laughs> Which I don't know if that's how that works. You're getting but too if much it is, oxygen. I'm going to get me some <laughs> oxygen right now. <laughs> I know, right? This would be a lot cheaper than the other stuff. The feds will make it illegal. <laughs> but yeah, he's getting high on oxygen. So before they go out onto the moon's surface, Cavour tells Bedford, in order for them to speak to each other, they've got to touch helmets. But they don't ever <laughs> no, really touch don't. helmets. Yeah, no, well. I know. You know how it goes, Derek. It seems like they could have just... It is what it that is. That is an odd, you know... I know there weren't radios in 1899, but... I guess they couldn't have radios or anything, but I don't know. Yeah, they could have just skipped that. A couple of tin cans with a string? <laughs> I don't know. And in the novel, there's oxygen, there's atmosphere all over the moon. So they're immediately oh, really? okay. Wow. Because we do learn that elsewhere on the moon there's <clears throat> oxygen yeah, that they can underneath. breathe, which is good since Cavalry's getting high <laughs> off the stuff. Yeah. And he's in full-blown chitty-chitty-bang-bang mode at that point. He says, woo! <laughs> Yeah, in the novel, there's there's oxygen and there's a lot of different unusual plant life on the surface. Yeah, there's pods oh, really? that come up, and it's more of you know. I'm sure by '64, when this was made, we had more information, so no, people wouldn't. Oh, come on, we know there's not oxygen on the moon. That's a really good point. I suppose back then it was mm-hmm. all a mystery. And then we have a little misstep by Mister Cavor. Well, this was something <laughs> that I found super cool when I was a kid because I remember. Some of these effects, like it's kind of a, well, excuse my French, sphincter, a big metal sphincter that opens. And that's when uh-huh. Cavour slips and falls down. But I remember as a kid how cool I thought that was, that huge. And the scale, I think the scale on a lot of the map paintings and things in this movie are, are pretty good. Oh, yeah. I love the map. I thought they mm-hmm. were really good. 
And it is huge and impressive and mm-hmm. epic and vast. And I loved that. But yeah, he falls down and of course Bedford goes after him. And in the process, Bedford Oy. loses his helmet. Yeah. But he's okay. We can breathe. But they got to find that helmet or they can't go back to the sphere. Right. So they've already got one problem that Kate couldn't go out onto the moon because there's only two suits. They weren't counting on Kate being there. So they've already got the problem of figuring out how she is going to be involved in the rest of the movie. But now that we've lost a helmet, there's only one (laughs) person who can go from, you know, to use the term you said, the sphincter, to the sphere. So they have to retrieve the helmet. And in doing so, we're we're eventually going to meet. We're getting up to the point where we're going to meet the residents here on the moon who made this giant Sphincter. sphincter and... The, you know, that's going to be the mm. day here. Yeah. <laughs> and the rest of the civilization we're going to discover. And when I first saw them, I felt a little ripped off. I'm like, I thought this was mm-hmm. a Harryhausen picture. Why aren't they stop motion? Yeah, oh, they're wow. just uh, little kids in little green bug outfits, really. I mean, they look Yeah, cool. they look cute. I'd, I'd buy an action figure of one. <laughs> okay, I'd buy yeah. a bunch of them, actually, and set them up on my, <laughs> you know, on a desk somewhere and make a little diorama out of it. You know but I wanted him to be stuck. Yeah, well, we get a few. Again, I know that's because of the budget, I heard. They just didn't have the cash. Yeah. Basically, they see the Selenites, Bedford and Cavour, mm-hmm. and that the Selenites start to herd them. They want to push them over a bridge. I mean, not push them over a bridge, but funnel, <laughs> funnel them <laughs> a certain way. And at this, po- right, and and at this point, yeah. we don't know the motivation of these Selenites. They, you know, they have a strange creature that's here. They may just be one of them to, to, you know, go this way so they can meet somebody or something. So we really don't know their motivations. But Bedford Bedford does not care. He starts throwing these little bug kids off the edge like nobody's business. God, I felt so bad for him. And then, and then there's Cavor. I mean, he looks like he's in tears. No, no, you'll ruin it. You'll ruin it. And when that scene's over, he scolds him. Well, now they know human violence. Way to go, buddy. (laughs) You know? But at that point, uh, I can see Cavor's, Cavor's point. You know, we didn't know. They didn't hurt you. Yeah, Bedford was wanting to take a gun with him, though. I mean, yeah. Which I don't know how it would operate on the moon, how well it could operate. Maybe it would operate really, really well, I suppose, because there's no extra gravity to hold the bullet down. <laughs> and it was pretty brutal. It was pretty intense. We don't see a lot of, you know, we don't see dead bodies and we don't <clears> see <throat> blood and gore. But, I mean, he's just picking just them up and chucking them. And I know they were dummies. I, I I get it, but still, it's pretty uh, mm-hmm. pretty violent. And finally, they're they're overrunning him, and he has to ask Cavor for assistance, and he doesn't want to do it, but he's got to help Bedford in that situation. So they finally mm-hmm. shake him off, and they they find Bedford's helmet, and they head back up to the surface, trying to get back to the sphere. But the sphere is not oh, there. The sphere has been dragged away. So Kate is now. We assume prisoner of the, and they started calling him Selenites. Do we know why they were calling him that? I do not know. I felt like that was just a name that Cavar came up with, and I think you're that. right. And I can't remember. I listened to the novel of a few days, and I was doing things when I was doing listen to sometimes. So I, um, I can't remember if in the novel it said it probably did why they were called they were what called, they were called. Yeah. No, well, huh. well, there there are tracks for the sphere, which lead back to. The Selenites. So now it becomes a, a story of trying to figure out where's Kate and where's the sphere, which means Kate can get out of the sphere and run around because if she's inside, there's oxygen, mm-hmm. so we're good. The adventure can so. continue. 
Yes, mm-hmm. with all three of them. Not no. that she does much. I liked Kate in this. You know, actually, of the three, <laughs> of the three uh, actors, just because the other two, I found the way they played it just kind of annoying a little. Um, I liked Kate. Sure. She was kind of level-headed more than the other two. Well, she was the smart one. She was the one who wanted mm-hmm. to chickens. She was the one who was really kind of thinking ahead. Even though she told Bedford, the moon or me, she still wanted to make sure he was mm-hmm. going to be okay. You know, she's still a compassionate person. She's a level-headed person who deserved better <laughs> than Bedford. But I guess without Bedford... She couldn't have gone on this amazing adventure. And it looks like they were called Selenites in the novel as well. I'm double-checking something yeah, here. Yeah, I can't so. remember how they came up with the name. but Selene is the name of a mythological moon ah, goddess. Ah, Selenites. Go. That must have been it. Sure. Why not? <laughs> they're very insectoid. They're green. They're kind of bug-looking. Well, as of yet, we haven't seen any stop-motion, have we? No, It's only really been haven't. the stand-in, the kid stand-ins to this point, until they go back. To search for the sphere. I think that's the first time we get the first look of any dynamation. We get to see the Yeah, moon the cows. moon cow, the moon calf. Which actually looks, it's real, mm-hmm. So, of course, it's well done. It looks mm-hmm. great. I think it looks amazing. And I'm a big fan of his work, obviously. I'm a monster kid. If I said anything otherwise, I think I'd get jumped <laughs> in the street and have my monster kid card taken away from me. But, I mean, it's just great. I wish there was more of it earlier in the film, but I don't know how you would have worked it in outside of the Selenites. Mm -hmm. It looks like a giant caterpillar almost, doesn't it? Yeah, huge, probably, what, 200 feet long? And it goes after Bedford and Cavour, and this is one of the few times that Bedford doesn't act like a total dick, because he he actually throws... It starts attacking him, he runs to the side and actually throws his helmet at the moon cow to divert it so Cavour can kind of get away, sort of. Even though he goes right, right into a bunch of selenites. But that was one That was one <laughs> moment when, when Bedford did something heroic. Heroic? So, good for him on that one. I felt the menace of the moon calf when it was banging mm. against the, the cave entrance trying to get in. Mm-hmm. That was pretty terrifying. And the scale, too. You know, for a giant caterpillar, <laughs> I mean... And the scale, it felt, you know, there's a lot of huge crystalline tower kind of structures in this and the moon cow smashes his head into it. And it feels big when it's doing it. Mm-hmm. So pretty impressive. I was say, but then the selenite show up and save um, Bedford with their <laughs> electric, uh, their electricity. <laughs> that was not even close to the noise. <laughs> it was more like an electrical thing. Sorry. They shoot it with some electricity. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I, I you know I'm gonna isolate oh, that little bit of sound, <laughs> and if I ever make a science fiction movie or audio story or whatever, I'm gonna use that for Ooh. the gun sound. I'm a star. I'm a <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, they zap the moon cow and reduce it to it bones. Quick. Even though we saw the selenites get taken out pretty easily on the bridge, we know they have weapons and we know they can do some real damage. So now they're really a threat as well to our heroes. The moon cow was in the novel, but they had no kind of super weapons like that. They used like a crossbow kind of thing or spears. They didn't have any electrical kind of thing. So it was a lot more primitive, just so you know. Well, the rest of the story is with the Selenites and our three humans trying to 
get together and get out. Although Cavor seems a little less interested in getting the heck out of there. He wants to learn more. He wants to communicate. There's a really interesting scene in which he feels as if he's communicating and even teaching his mm-hmm. language to his selenite captors. And I thought that, and that I believe was a uh, stop motion yes. selenite, wasn't it? So we do yeah. have some stop motion selenite. That's the first there. time with the, with the moon cow. And then we have, that's the, the short area with, with, with the dynamation in it. And they look pretty cool. Yeah. Oh, it's also cool where they x-ray Kate. And so you can see her skeleton. That was oh, that's cool. That right. reminded me of Jason and the Argonauts and stuff. Yeah. It did, didn't it? It was like, oh, Harry Housen yeah. doing skeletons. That's that was nice. Awesome. Yeah, it was, it was good to see. And, you know, she's talking and wanting to get out of there. And the x-ray is the one moving around. I mean, mm-hmm. that's a neat little scene. And the way they worked it together to have her come out from behind mm-hmm. the screen. That was cool. Bedford doesn't want to hang out here. <laughs> <laughs> Bedford's not necessarily interested in learning more. He mm-hmm. wants to go home. There, there aren't gold nuggets laying around. He wants to get out of there. He wants to get out of there with Kate. And I guess he wants to get out of there with Cavor, but Cavor, what did he think was going to happen? Was he going to come up here by himself to begin with and it was going to be a lot different? I, I don't, I feel like his expectations should have changed once he got up there and saw what he, well, I think his, his point of view is that, cause he said more than once, I should have come alone. I shouldn't have brought you. I just think his point of view was probably Bedford acting so rashly soured things. You know, I think he thought if he would have gone up there alone, maybe he could have communicated more. To what end though? Just to be the first to do it? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I don't know yeah. his ultimate motivation. I mean, everybody has their own. You know, he was a little off his rocker, so maybe he wasn't, I don't know. We're getting deep. <laughs> so. I like the power source. Yeah, they're powered solarly. Yes. And this is something that, you know, a lot of this is is touched upon in the novel. You know, they say they go to sleep, you know, they they get covered with cobwebs in the movie. In the novel, it's different in, in as much as on this one, in the movie, there's two kinds of selenites. There's the kid selenite in a costume, and there's a stop-motion selenite, basically. In the novel, there's dozens and dozens of different kinds of selenites, and they all have a different, whatever their job is, they look what works best for that job. Like if you're a laborer in the fields, you develop a physicality and a mentality that allows you to do that and that only. And they all develop totally different looks. So like the, the, there's a scene, there's one little part of a chapter in the novel where a lot of, there's a, these selenites are just lying in these fields face down. And Cavour, or no, Bedford, I'm sorry, I can't remember which one asks, when they said that, well, they don't need them all the time. So when they're not working, they just lie there. So that's touched on. There are little things that are brought from the novel and put in. And there's some more things later we'll talk about. But that's one. And that, I know, it had to have been a huge budgetary thing because, geez, some of the descriptions of some of these the different selenites is pretty outrageous, pretty interesting. Huh. That would have been neat to see multiple bug dudes. <laughs> yeah, see, now they could maybe, well, they'd use CGI, which would be but you know they could probably yeah. do it but you know the whole story i don't know is might be hard to do these days 
And I think it's been attempted a few times. This is not the first time it was adapted, and it wasn't the last time either. I believe in 2010 there was one that was done for TV. I haven't seen it. I tried to find that one, and I could not find it anywhere. Wasn't it for BBC? Mm. I think BBC did it, probably. There was a newer one. There was a – oh, I wish – I didn't write it down. There was a guy that – Tried to do one, and I saw a trailer from it just a couple of years ago. It was really low budget. If you look up uh, First Men on the Moon in, in 3D, 3D, that's it. I watched I watched one of the oh, trailers. Wow, it's 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 interesting that it's it's pretty low budget, but it's more power to them. Well, that's a slightly different moon bug, <laughs> huh? I think I like Harry uh, Hogan's so. a little better. Anyway. As we veer off track here, I do like that it's all powered by solar. And coincidentally, there is an eclipse, so everything shuts down for a little while and gives our humans an opportunity to, to move forward a little bit. A little bit. Yeah, they get together. But really, they don't do much until the, the selenites start moving again. I, I thought yeah, that was odd. Like and and once the, the, the eclipse was over, they just walk right past these little selenites dismantling the the sphere and the, the selenites don't even acknowledge them. It's kind of odd. There is this sense that, you know, they know they're there, but they don't really think mm-hmm. about them. Have they deemed them no longer to be a threat of any kind? Or I don't know. It, they do seem to be able to move around the moon base without, or the moon city without having mm-hmm. to hide. Or are certain selenites, I don't know if maybe that goes back to the novel a little bit. Maybe these selenites were oh. dismantling the, the sphere and that's just what they did. You know, maybe they're, that that was wasn't yeah. their job to look for intruders or whatever. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about that, but that's a good there. It's been explained <laughs> away in my head. Thank you. So you mentioned they were dismantling the sphere, which is a big deal because how are they gonna get home if the sphere's busted up? But Cavor doesn't really seem interested in going home. He wants to talk to the head bug in charge, <laughs> I guess. He's called the Grand Lunar in the in the novel. Okay. And yeah, so this is another example of a really nice map painting. Where he's, there's a yes. massive stairway going up to the Grand Lunar, and the scale, again, looks amazing. Mm-hmm. It is so impressive. Bob Cuff did the matte painting in this, and I don't know. See, I, I can tell you a little bit about special makeup effects. I can tell you a little bit about stop motion effects and things like that. When it comes to matte painting, that's a field of special effects and production I know very little about. But when I see something that I like, I can tell you that's good work, and this is It can make work. a massive difference in a... Oh, yeah. It really can. And when it's not done well, you can tell. You'll have to find another movie to see it not done well because it's done really well here. It's Again, it's massive in in scope. It's huge. It's super impressive. And Cavor doesn't have anything to hide. He wants to have a dialogue with the head bug in charge. He wants to talk all about, he's very open about our society, about our wars, our cities. I mean, at one point, he just kind of sits down and is leaning up against the wall like he's having a chat with an old buddy. Uh, my guard would be mm-hmm. way up here. I was like, come on. And while that's happening, Bedford and, and Kate are trying to figure out how they're going to get out of they there. put the sphere together, but there's uh, one blind they can't seem to get functioning. So I guess they only have one, uh, one option. That's to go back after Joseph. His name's Joseph Kavor. Yeah. Go back after Kavor. And that's something else that's... Do you say Kavor? You say Kavor. I, I don't know. I've been saying it. I think I've been saying Kavor or Kavor. It's Lionel Jeffries. We know who well, we're talking about. It's just funny because I think he's called Kavor, but um, I don't know if you noticed, Kate always calls him Kaver. 
Mr. Caver. Yeah, you're yeah, right. She says it three or four times in the movie, but she always says Mr. Caver. That's all. Easter egg. Huh. Right? Is that an Easter egg? <laughs> I don't know. So they go back for Ben. For, they go back for Cavor, who's uh, he's not too enthused about helping them, really. In fact, he's he's pretty put off initially that they, you know, oh, you ruined everything for me, and now you want my help. Well, Bedford makes a, a comment here as well, and I, I thought it was I liked it. I mean, it, it's very. I don't know if it speaks to him being a hero or not. But this isn't a conversation. You're on trial, and. Is it at this point where, I mean, just before this, the Grand Lunar, the big bug in charge, is telling Caver, well, if you're the only one who knows the secret on how to get here, you can never go home. I saw that coming. <laughs> <laughs> I saw through the big bug's motivations from the beginning. But Caver, he's got these blinders on, and maybe Bedford ruined it for him. But at this point, you're screwed, man, unless you help these guys, you know, build the sphere. And I don't even know if Caver wanted to go home. Do you think he wanted? I mean, if if he would have had the option just to go... Well, he did have the option. He, yeah, I mean, he, he, he chooses, chooses to not stay. to go. Knowledge is more important he chooses than to stay. whatever he left, I guess. Well, our heroes make it out, sort of. Two-thirds <clears> of them do. Cavor does stay behind. He's got a terrible cough, though, that Cavor. Oh, God, he's not doing well oh. at all, is he? <laughs> no, he's coughing all the way up that stairwell to see the Grand Lunar. But anyway, well, that's <laughs> it. You know, basically, we're done in 1899. Now yep. we're back to 1964. Yeah, back to the uh, nursing home, and old Arnold is wrapping up his story, and the reporters come in, and they turn on the news and watch the new moon landing, I guess, the second moon landing. Where the camera was set up on the moon, I'm not sure how that was done. Because <laughs> it's a nice mm-hmm. wide shot. Again, there's those map paintings, and you see the little astronauts walking through, and there's the remains of the Selenite civilization. Nothing but decay and something. Do we want to say how, what the, what the final? Oh, we've fate we've of the done the whole were? thing anyway. All right, it's, no, a cop, it's yeah, it's such a cop a out. <laughs> you know what is? Is it the same way in the novel? Listen, I'll, I'll, at the very end, I'll I'll let you know what the difference is. But but okay. no, yeah, yeah we're had a cold, cold in uh, uh, the like world of the worlds. Just like in Pocahontas. Wait a minute. (laughs) (laughs) He made them all sick, and they didn't have any defenses. And the the, uh, spacemen get out just in the nick of time. As we watch the very end, before the credits, we look at Bedford looking at the moon, commenting on Cavor's cough. He always had that nasty cold. End credits. How does it end with the novel? Well, in the novel, Cavor stays. Um, He actually wants to get off, but he's just taken prisoner. He never gets to. Um, so Bedford takes off. He lands in the ocean off the coast of England with the sphere. And in the novel, he has a lot of the Selenites. They do have tons of gold in the novel and they use gold to make a lot of their tools. So he brings back a golden chain and a golden pick or spike or something. So he ends up getting out of the sphere he goes to a village, to a hotel, and he's just kind of, you know, he's convalescing, basically. And all of a sudden, the sphere takes back off. And evidently, some kid had gone in there and, and messed around and took off into space again. Oh, wow. Okay. But that's not even the end. Later, he, he ends up writing a, a, a book. He figures, you know, without a sphere, without any, you know, this gold could be from anywhere, blah, blah, blah. So he ends up writing a book. To uh, to tell his story, 
or is it a play? Maybe a play, but it's, it's, it's kind of written as fiction. And shortly after, they start intercepting radio waves from the moon. And this is Cavour. He's still alive. And he's sending radio waves out. Somehow he's devised some kind of a crude radio with the selenites. So we intercept fragments of a tons of radio transmissions. And this is where a lot of the visit with the Grand Lunar, all the information, like where Cavour, where he flashes the light in his eyes, the Grand Lunar, to, sh- to show him the, the irises, how the irises work. That's all oh, that's in the right, end. That's, yeah. All this stuff is in transmissions, a lot of it after the fact. So like all about their okay. society, this is all in just transmissions. And then after several that kind of explain it, there's the, fi- the final transmission oh. says basically, oh, I shouldn't have told the, the Grand Lunar that. And that's the end. That's paraphrased. But that's a great yeah. way to end. Oh, I shouldn't have told him that. <laughs> the end. Whoa. <laughs> shouldn't have told him what? <laughs> but it's just fragments, so you don't really know, you know. But it's, uh, yeah, a lot different. But I can see why they excised a lot of it, because a lot of it's exposition. I mean, the transmissions at the end, they try to incorporate into the movie. So I understand that. I would have really liked to see Catherine and uh, Bedford get back, though. I wish they could have at least, you know, basically, Kavor, well, you know how to fly the sphere. It's like, and that's it. It's like, it would be nice to actually have them get back, at least. To see that happen together, because we really don't have any solid resolution outside of mm-hmm. what he tells us. We landed off the coast of Zanzibar, and the sphere sank to the bottom of the ocean, and nobody believed us. At least they did get married. She finally trapped that Bedford guy because they did get married. I think after an adventure like that, you different perspective <laughs> on life, maybe. I don't know. It was good. You know, looking at it with a critical eye as an adult now, it's, it doesn't hold up as well as it could have. But I still enjoyed it. I watched it twice <laughs> lately. Yeah, really, yeah. I if I I thought about watching it a second time because the Blu-ray that I have has a commentary track with Harryhausen Ooh, doing nice. a commentary, and I haven't watched it yet. Uh, and I may still go back and watch it just for fun because you can't get mm-hmm. enough Harryhausen ever. You know, it's just a rule. I agree. <laughs> yeah, there there is no such thing as a Harryhausen saturation point, and the Harryhausen effects in this are. Solid. I mean, they're just as good as anything that I've seen him do. I just wish there was more of it. I think the production design is interesting. It's very, would you call it steampunk or kind of like this proto-steampunk kind of feel? Yeah, that's what I'd say. Something like that. Cause, Which mm-hmm. I really enjoyed. I like that aesthetic when done right to not way over the top. I like the music a lot. I think the music is epic and grand when it needs to be. It's by a composer by the name of Laurie Johnson. Uh, he also did the score for Captain Kronos Vampire Hunter for Hammer. So I actually have a soundtrack album with music from this and Captain Kronos thrown on it together, <laughs> which is a weird <laughs> mix, but it's the same composer. It's all his work. So I do like his work quite a bit, and I do like that music a lot. And I'm a big fan of Edward Judd, even though the character is not <clears throat> the greatest. The script was co-written by Nigel Neal. Who was done... All kinds of monster kid things. Quatermass. Oh, tons of Quatermass. I mean, without Nigel Neal, no Quatermass. No Quatermass, no, well, I don't know what else, but I love Quatermass. So, you know, Nigel Neal. And in fact, what's kind of funny is this is the second recording I'm doing this morning. As I said earlier, I recorded with Casey Criswell about one of Mm -hmm. the Doctor Who films uh, earlier today. 
also co-written or somewhat co-written by <laughs> Nigel Neal. So today's just oh, Nigel cool. Neal Day over here at Monster Kid Radio headquarters. But yeah, I'm a big fan of his work. I, I ended up really enjoying this film, and I was glad that you wanted to talk about it because, you know, we've been trying to find something for us to talk about, and you have a movie, is it Without Warning? Yeah, Without Warning. <laughs> From the 80s that mm-hmm. you mentioned a few times. I'm like, yeah, you know, it's, it's kind of monsterish. Why not? But then you brought this one up and I'm like, hey, I got mm-hmm. the Blu-ray. I haven't watched it yet. Let's do it. So, Tom. Derek. Thank you for doing this. Man. This was a so lot much. of fun. It was fun. I'll try to get back in the swing. I'm not somebody that's, well, you know, not comfortable with doing this normally. I'm not a big star like you. Rondo <laughs> Award winning oh. podcaster. I'm just a lowly monster kid. <laughs> So I'll try to get back on the swing, maybe. You know, I wouldn't have won the Rondo without the help and support and the guest spots of all the people <laughs> that have appeared here on Monster Kid Radio. So, Tom, you were part of that, so thank you for making that happen Oh, it's for my me. pleasure, young man. We'll have to do it again soon. We'll pick something. Definitely. We need to. Okay. Goodbye, Monster Kids. I'll see you next time. <laughs> Thanks to Tom Beagler for being on the show this time around and for talking about First Men in the Moon. This was a lot of fun. I haven't talked about a Ray Harryhausen film in way too long on Monster Kid Radio, and I haven't had Tom on the show in way too long. Tom, we're going to have to make this something that we do more often, all right? And I'm giving you plenty of warning, because I don't want you to be without warning. Without warning, get it? See what I... The hunting season has begun. But the hunter isn't human. Only the prey are. It came without warning. Like nothing on this earth. Our friends are dead. Beyond any known terror. Tell that horrible creature. Come on, come on. They're exchanging me. Because when it leaves this planet, no one may be left alive. Look, I'm warning you. When they start eating on you, don't come to me for help. <laughs> Baby! He came down here to the spot. He wants to get himself a few trophies. You know what? Right now, you and me, we are the prize game. The hunter. The hunted. That was no dream. The thing that preys on human fear and feeds on human flesh. From deepest space it came, and now man is the endangered species. It came without warning. And now it's coming for you. You know how I keep talking about the Lovecraft Film Festival here in Portland, Oregon. This is one of the reasons why I wanted to move to this area. Okay, that's actually not really the case. But once I found out that the Lovecraft Film Festival was in Portland, it really kind of became part of the reason why we came. Kind of, sort of. Anyway, the Lovecraft Film Festival is happening October 2nd, 3rd, and 4th at the Hollywood Theater in Portland, Oregon. Now, I bring it up here on Monster Kid Radio for two reasons. One, I love me some good Lovecraft adaptations. I love all things Lovecraftian. I like that aesthetic, the weird tale. Lovecraft, Howard, Durleth, maybe even a little bit of Poe, although I get 
a little pulled out by the time the festival's over. Anyway, I love this stuff. It's my podcast, so I'm going to talk about it here. But two, the second reason I want to talk about the Lovecraft Film Festival on the show is because they just started announcing some of the films that will be playing this year's festival. It's the 20th annual festival, and check this out. The movie City of the Dead from 1960 will be playing at the Lovecraft Film Festival. This will be on the big screen. This is a Christopher Lee film. It's also known as Horror Hotel here in the States or depending on which cut you see. This is a really creepy, a really cool film. I cannot wait to see it at the Lovecraft Film Festival. I don't know what else is coming. Panels haven't been announced yet, but I am going to be a panelist there, so I'm sure I'm going to be involved in something. And if you're in the area, I'd love to meet you at the festival. This is Whitewood, Massachusetts. A young girl, a stranger, has come to Whitewood to do research. She has come, she thinks, to study. Leave Whitewood. Leave Whitewood tonight, I beg of you. Leave before it is too late. In spite of this warning, the girl lingers on. years old. Human blood keeps them alive forever. Harlow. brings us to the end of episode 236 of monster kid radio thank you for listening thanks again to tom for being part of the show and thank you to the band anonymous henchman we'll talk about them here at the very end next week on monster kid radio i've got two things lined up this past weekend was the rose city comic-con here in portland and i went and i brought my recorder so i've got some coverage from the rose city comic-con i'm gonna call that part of the episode a monster kid goes to a comic-con and it's gonna be about well a monster kid going to a comic con. The second part of the episode is going to be a little bit of feedback catch up. I've got two awesome pieces of feedback in the hopper that have come in. So I'm going to go over those next week as well. If you want to maybe have your feedback reviewed on the show, head over to monsterkidradio.net and check out our contact information. Our email address is monsterkidradio at gmail.com and we have a voicemail line at 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795-MKR. Our website is where you're going to find everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio between episodes. We have links to our Patreon page where you can help support the show that way. We have links to every single song that's appeared here on the show. A way for you to subscribe to the monthly Monster Rally Checkpoint e-newsletter. And a link to our Facebook group where you can join the group and get involved with conversations with listeners of the show between episodes if you are a Facebook user. If you are a Facebook user, maybe look up Monster Kid Radio and give us a like as well. And if you're a user of iTunes, we can always use an extra iTunes review or two. I want to thank everybody who's helped to support the show and make it what it is. I love doing this and I love doing it for you guys and gals. 
Thank you for making Monster Kid Radio part of your ear diet. I'm really stretching here. Why don't we go ahead and wrap up the show? Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Nikola Tesla theme that belongs to the Omaha surf band Anonymous Henchmen. It's on their album Dial H for Henchmen. You can find them at anonymoushenchmensurf.bandcamp.com camp.com the album sells for seven dollars us go check them out and let them know the monster kid radio sunship talk to everybody next week Oh,